One of the things Susie and I are working on in our family is to teach our boys how to be gentlemen. That's something that doesn't always come naturally in this world, but we're, we're intentionally trying to teach them how to be gentlemen. And part of that for us is having them open doors for their mom and their sister. And so at restaurants, you'll see them run and open doors, and we're working on trying not to fight over it. And, you know, <laughs> gentlemen, you, you, you willingly do this. And a, a couple of weeks ago, we were out for my birthday at Soup Plantation, and the boys were very diligent opening the, the doors of the restaurant. And we get to the car, and we've just started teaching them to open the, the car door for Mom and Alicia. And we, we, we delayed that because oftentimes in parking lots, you're next to other cars. <laughs> and we wanted the boys to be old enough where they're not going, crash, crash, and, and they're, they're to that point. And so we, we all let Mommy in, and I showed them how. And we, we get to Alicia, and Alicia's sitting on the other side. And I said, boys, come with me around the other side, and I'll have you open the door for Alicia. And... They come around to the other side and open the door for Alicia and turn back and she's not there. And they look inside the car and she's inside the car sitting in her seat. <laughs> she goes, Mommy, it's quicker if I just do it myself. <laughs> so we have a little bit of teaching to do on the other side <laughs> about how to be a lady. And, and, uh, but what a profound statement. It's easier if I just do it myself. And I was thinking about that, and especially as we come to the church at Laodicea this morning, and their issue is self-sufficiency. And that is a statement of self-sufficiency, isn't it? If I just do it myself, I know it's going to get done right. I know it's going to be quicker. I know it's going to be easier. And she was proud of herself. She's like, oh yeah, this was more efficient. The boys were like, ooh. um, But we all do the same thing. We don't like to rely on other people. We don't like to depend on other people, things outside of our control. We want to control our circumstances. Think of some of the phrases that we have in our culture. God helps those who help themselves. That is not a verse. Don't say somewhere in the Bible. Okay, what about other phrases? Um, If you want something done right, Pull yourself together. Believe in yourself. Look out for... You guys are good. And so we're fighting this mentality of self-reliance. I can pull myself up by my own... Yeah, we can just go on. Isn't it interesting how many phrases we have that culture has used to shape our worldview? And to shape... a a worldview that includes the American dream that I can start from anywhere, and if I just give it enough effort, if I just give it enough diligence, I can do what I want. But does that kind of independence and self-sufficiency have any place in a Christian walk? Does it have any place in the church that Christ wants, that He is designing, that He wants to use for His purposes? Does it have any place in our own spiritual lives? This morning we'll answer that question as we look at the church at Laodicea and what Christ has to say to them and how he says it. And as we study, as we study these verses this morning, I encourage you to listen to the tone of these verses. Listen to the content, but also listen to the tone and we can see the heart of Christ. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. We'll start by reading the letter to the church at Laodicea. 
And then we'll dig into it with the, the, the breakdown, the textual breakdown that we've been doing. This is the last of the seven churches. And so we have our seven golden lampstands on the, the platform here that we found out from Revelation 1 was what Jesus was walking through and it represented the seven churches. And so we come to the seventh church, the seventh lampstand in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, as we come to your word, Lord, we come to a passage that steps on my toes. A passage that is deeply convicting, especially in the culture we live in. And so this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open this passage to every heart here. That you would convict, that you would step on our toes, that you would confront us of things that are not appropriate for your church and your people. That we may leave this morning being enriched by your words, but repenting from your word. Because of your word. Lord, we give you this time and ask for you to work. In Jesus' name, amen. As is our tradition through this series, we start with a little bit of historical background. Who is this letter to? And we see that in verse 14. The angel of the, to the angel of the Lord, uh, of the church in Laodicea write. And so this is a letter to the, the church at Laodicea. We have our map that we've been doing. And if you remember, John is over in Patmos writing. And he's writing to the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And they've roughly followed the postal route around this way. And we get to this bottom one, and this is the church at Laodicea. Now, we've talked about Laodicea before, about a year ago, when we were talking through Colossians and studying through the, the book of Colossians. Because I don't know if you can see that, but do you see that city there? What's that city? Colossi. Very good. I can't really read the writing, but... <laughs> Hopefully you can. Colossi's there, and Hierapolis is there, and these three cities made a triangle or, or a set of three cities in the Lycus Valley, the Lycus River Valley. And so this was a very fertile valley that these three cities were all closely related to each other. Colossi was about 10 miles to the east, southeast of, of Laodicea. Hierapolis was about six miles north of the city. And we'll talk a little bit more about both of those cities a little bit later in the text. But in, in all of these cities, the evidence shows that it was probably Epaphras that started the church. While Paul was in Ephesus, which is over on the coast, so Ephesus is over here, 
on his third missionary journey. He spent a, a, a lot of time there. And Epaphras came from Colossae and from these cities, learned about Christ, and, and Paul was able to instruct him. And then he went back and started these churches. A great story of discipleship and, and discipleship reproducing, whereas Epaphras is starting these churches. Laodicea was known as the greatest city of this valley. In fact, it was founded about between 261 and 253 B.C. by Antiochus II, sometimes called the Great. He named it after his first wife, Laodice. And we sort of know some of the dates because he divorced her in 253 B.C. So we're pretty sure it was before then because it was a good city. It was a, a nice city. And, and so he founded this city and... and in any city in ancient times, and those went on the Israel, that went on the Israel trip with us, you know that a city needs a few things to thrive, right? And one of the things that, uh, that helps in location, location, location is trade routes. And Laodicea, as with many of these cities, but Laodicea was on two strategic trade routes. Like Ephesus and some of the other port cities were on one. But it was interesting because Laodicea, this valley was the key to this entire region. And so the, the road went from Ephesus and the port there that went to the west through Laodicea and then through the rest of the east. And so this was a strategic location for trade. Interestingly enough, there was another road that went from the north down to the Mediterranean Sea in the ports in the south. Laodicea is also at that crossroads. And so you have the intersection of two major trade routes. So you can only imagine what that would do to the city. It was a very, very wealthy city. One of the things about being on a trade route is you could put a tax collector out there on the road and every time a caravan passed or every time goods passed, you would take a tax on it. And so Laodicea was, was wealthy, one of the greatest cities of the, the valley. It became both a commercial center and an administrative center. The roads were well-maintained by the Romans. Why? Because they're critical to commerce. It had, it was in the middle of the Fertile Valley, so it had one of the other ingredients of a successful city, food, the ability to grow food, the ability to have crops. They also were very well known for the, the wool that would come from the sheeps in the area. Sheeps, sheep in the area. Sound like my kids. And so everything seemed like it was going for this town. Laodicea was defensible. It was up on a, a plateau in the middle of this fertile valley so they could see anyone that was coming and they could defend it. It was lacking one element, though, and that will play into the, the letter that we'll read. It was lacking a good water supply. It's great to have food, great to have trade, great to be defensible, but without water, you die. And so they had to solve that, and we'll get into that. But some of the, the marks of, of Laodicea that you have in your notes, it was a fabulously wealthy city. We mentioned that. As they've unearthed it, they've found lots of marble and, and lots of things that would just point to opulence. For those of you that, that go back a little bit, remember Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Thought of trying to do the accent and I gave up. But this was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. This was the Beverly Hills of the area. And, and so they found so many things that pointed to that. Let's see if this will go forward again. There we go. You see, this is um, the ruins of Laodicea up on a plateau in a defensible position over the valley. 
This was the great theater. They had a huge theater and some of the seating that they've uncovered there. But if one theater is good, two theaters are better. So they also had a small theater in case they needed a smaller venue. One of the things that they had was they had great streets and paved streets. In this case, they even had developed a gutter system down the side of the streets. And so the, this town had so much. These were city gates. And these were the western city gates, the, um, the Ephesus gates or the Ephesians gates, which pointed toward Ephesus. Now, you didn't have to be really short to get through them, as it looks here. But over time, the, the sediment in some of the, the area it rises, the ground level rises. And so if they dug down, they'd be able to unearth the rest of these gates. So it was defensible. This was their west, west bathhouse. This was their southern bathhouse. And so they had several bathhouses, which again, bathhouses were a sign of wealth, a sign of prosperity. And so to have several in a city, you get the idea of just how self-sufficient, self-contained the city was. This is a, a picture of a stadium 900 feet long because they had all kinds of events. And so this was dedicated to entertainment and all kinds of things that would be part of lifestyles of the rich and famous. They found a, a large gymnasium. So it was a wealthy city. It also became the banking center of the area. Cicero, one of the highly elected um, officials of Rome, a consul of Rome, he used to come to Laodicea just to cash his bills of exchange. Their coinage showed the, the wealth and the opulence. So that really led to the second point, in, uh, the sketch of Laodicea, they prided themselves on independence and self-sufficiency. They prided themselves as a culture on independence and self-sufficiency. Sound familiar? Absolutely. I, we can relate with that. Unlike some of the other cities we've studied, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, who, who really were intentional about courting favor with Rome and getting um, benefits from Rome, Laodicea was sort of the opposite. Not that they didn't like Rome, but they didn't want to rely on anyone else. In AD 60, there was a major earthquake in the region that we've mentioned a, a couple times. And Laodicea was, was almost fully destroyed in this earthquake. Now, these were strategic areas, so Rome offered to come in and help. And they, they offered this to a number of cities in the area. All of the other cities accepted Rome's help, except Laodicea. They said, no, we've got it. We'd rather rebuild ourselves. We'd rather use our own money. And in fact, some of the historical letters or records, there was one family that themselves rebuilt part of the city, got to put their name on it and all those things. And so you get an idea of the attitude in Laodicea. The next point there is that, that I've already mentioned they were known for their textile industries. Known for their textile industries. The, the hillside shepherds would breed sheep with black, glossy, soft wool. They would make tunics and hooded tunics and, and all of these specialty clothes. They were also famous for medical therapy for the eyes. They had a, a medical center relating to the eye. They were famous for, for production of what they would call Phrygian powder. And this Phrygian powder they would mix with water and it became this solve for the eyes that would cure a lot of things. And so they had it all. They had it all. Pretty lax and easy life. 
Um, the Talmud even scorns the Jews that lived there. And there were a lot. There was over 7,500 Jewish men there. Some say 8,500. And, and there was a large Jewish presence. But the Talmud scorned them for having such an easy and lax life. Oh, you live in Laodicea. Yeah, must be hard. Must be tough. So that's the attitude of this city. As far as worship goes, they had some temples. They worshipped men and Zeus, a couple of gods, but it wasn't a huge thing because really their worship was centered around themselves. Maybe not officially, but in cultural. It was all about self and these bathhouses and opulence. And I can take care of myself. And so that's the background, the setting that is essential actually to understanding this letter. A setting of self-sufficiency that plagues us today, that, that we fight against today. And so this letter we should read with open ears and open hearts. And so we come in verse 14 to the characteristic of Christ, who it's from. And in each of the letters, Christ has used a description of Himself that is very intentional, very specific to what this church needs to hear. In the characteristic of Christ in verse 14, and to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And so He describes Himself as the Amen. He describes Himself as the faithful and true witness as the beginning of God's creation. And as we unpack these, these are huge for what Laodicea needed. When we think of amen and the word amen, it means truth or to confirm truth. When, when you say amen in the, in, in, in the service to something, you're really saying that's true. That's true. I support that. And so here, this is a reference to Jesus being the God of truth. The God that, conf- or that He confirms all of the promises of the Godhead, all of the promises in Scripture, and verifies them to be true. As we've seen throughout in Revelation, there's so many references back to the Old Testament. Maybe not direct references, but it's influenced by the Old Testament. And in this case, it's a reference back to Isaiah 65:16, probably. The only other place where we see truth or the amen used as a name of God. In Isaiah 65:16, it says, So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. And in the Isaiah passage, God is declaring himself as the God of truth and the source of anything they're doing. And so here, Jesus begins by introducing himself, I'm truth. And he goes on, the first two are related to each other, really a combination, the faithful and true witness. He's saying, I'm truth, and I'm going to be faithful to tell you the truth, and what I tell you, you're going to need to hear. Now, if Jesus comes and says that to you, what kind of message are you expecting to hear? It's truth. Probably some hard truth. And to a church that was self-sufficient, who thought they had it all together, who thought they knew what was best, that's important for Jesus to start by saying, no, you don't know what's best. I'm truth. I am the source of what you need to know and what you need to hear. And so he says the words of the Amen. It is true. The faithful and true witness. 
And then he goes on to say he's the beginning of God's creation. And the Greek word there, arche, is, is not beginning as in the first one created because Jesus was not created. Beginning there means ruler over or source of. And, and that's the sense of this passage that Jesus is saying, from me came all creation. I created all things. I rule over all things. I am sovereign. And again, it's very important to the church at Laodicea because he's saying, I am the source of all things. In me, all things hold together. And so, to their self-reliance, it's a direct attack on it. Because they're saying, in them, all things hold together. We don't need the source. We don't need the ruler. And they should have known better. Parents, do you like telling your kids the same thing over and over? You know, you tell them once, and you, okay, that's, that's instruction. What about if you've told them the same thing five times, and they're still disobeying you? Well, hopefully by then, we're already dealing with it. We're already taking care of it. But keep in mind the proximity to Colossae and the letter to the Colossians was, was a, a letter that they shared. And so it went from church to church. And so the Laodiceans had, had heard this letter. They had read this letter. In Colossians, they've already heard this. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, in Colossians 1.16. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. What's the focus of the Colossians passage? It's all on the Creator, right? It's all that everything is for the Creator, everything is directed to the, to the Creator. He is our sustenance. He is the one that holds all things together. And so... In Revelation 3, when Jesus says, I am the beginning of God's creation, he is directly referencing this letter probably and saying, don't you remember? I am the source. You need me. And you've chosen to rely on yourself. And so right from the start, in the the description of who is writing this letter, the attributes that Christ chooses to include in this letter, we see hints as to what he's going to say. Then in verse 15, we get to the, the criticism. Now, what did we miss that we've seen in all the other letters? Commendation. Okay, now, now, now get the picture. Students that are here, have you ever just been sure that you've aced a test, you're going to go in and get an A, you go in the next week, and you sit down, and the teacher puts the the test on your your desk, and it's an F? No. No. (laughs) That's good. It would be an awful feeling, though, wouldn't it? Because you've intentionally, or you've thought it through, and you were convinced you were doing fine. It would be like going in for a job performance review, and we've talked about this as God's review of His church, His assessment of His church. It would be like going in for a performance review, and you're sure that you're getting a raise, and you're sure that you've been doing a great job, and the first thing your boss says is, well, now that we're done with the good things, let's move on to what you need to work on to keep your job. And you're thinking, what good things? The first thing you said. And he's just skipping them. And that's what's happening here is Christ, as he's writing to the church, is skipping any commendation because there was nothing to commend. That's a scary thing. 
but it's something we should take notice in the sequence of the letter. We get an, an, a feel of the tone of what Christ is thinking as he writes this. And so in verse 15, we come to the criticism. And as we, as we read verses 15 through 17, we'll fill in your notes, their self-sufficiency and apathy makes them disgusting to Christ. Their self-sufficiency and apathy makes them disgusting to Christ. Let's read 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's been so many things that, written about this and taught on this. And okay, what does it mean? And, but what really helps us is understanding what's going on in the history. Understanding what's going on in the, the area, the geography of the reason, of the region. So many times this is taught as, okay, God either wants us to be hot on fire for God or cold completely turning away from God. And, and I've heard that taught many times. I've grown up. I've probably taught that in Sunday school before. The problem is, is that's probably not what the text is saying when we begin to understand what's happening. Does God want a church that's cold? No. I, and so it makes more sense when we start to understand what's happening at Colossae and what's happening at Hierapolis. You see, Hierapolis to the north was just just a little bit. It was close enough for them to see. And Hierapolis was well known for its hot springs. And in that region, there were all kinds of springs and, and they had mineral content and they were hot. And so Hierapolis, people would go there for spa day. And in fact, from, from Laodicea, you could look and the hills above Hierapolis looked like they were covered with snow, but it wasn't snow. It was minerals. Okay. So, so this is a mineral rich region. And so this was a travel destination for, for spa day, for medicinal purposes. And, and people would go there, and this water had a way of healing you. It had a way of helping you feel better. Now, Colossae was very different. You see that about 10 miles to the, the east, to the southeast. Colossae was nestled up against 8,000-foot-high mountains. And so out of those mountains was coming the most incredible cold springs that you could imagine. Refreshing water. And, and it was also very well known for the, the quality of its water. And so right in the middle of them is Laodicea, which had no water supply. It was built up on a plateau. And so when he says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot, their first thought is Colossae and Hierapolis. Cold water was refreshing. It was valuable. It was worth something. The hot water with the mineral content was refreshing and healing. Both were extremely useful. But Laodicea had no such thing. In fact, they had no healing water. They had no water supply. And so they decided to fix it, of course, themselves. And so they came up with this plan. And they found a spring about six miles to the south, and the geography worked out, and they built an aqueduct from the spring to the south to Laodicea. And in fact, it was, it was about six miles long. We've unearthed, um, or we, no, not me, but they've unearthed many parts of it. And this is an example of one of the pieces of aqueduct. And if you put these together, you get a, a sense of how they were bringing these together. Some of you may have noticed our little pipe here. 
and wondered what we were doing. Some of the men thought, well, did the air conditioning break? And we're, we're ducting it from one side to another. Just a visual to help us understand Laodicea. They had pipes that were going everywhere. They had an elaborate water system. This was a picture of the aqueduct coming over a hill. And the pipes would go down through the middle of that. This was another picture of, of a dual aqueduct system. So they were pretty advanced. They had water stations where they would bring the pipes in and then through clay pipes reroute it to different places in the city. This is an example of one of those. And if you look, you can see the remnants of a, a water terminal and the clay pipes that were coming through. So you get the picture of what they're doing. Self-reliant. We can solve this ourselves. But there was a problem. The problem was they were bringing water through mineral-rich rock from a hot spring that was probably rich in minerals itself. And so what happens as water goes through the mineral-rich rock? What do you think would happen? It would clog because the minerals start to leach into the water. The surroundings start to leach into what could have been fresh, what could have been pure. And it already started with a high mineral content. And so what we end up with, if we can get to the next picture, we end up with something like this. Now notice this outside is the clay pipe. What is this? It's calcified mineral deposits. And as this water came through, it was building up, it had such a high mineral content that it was clogging the system and it was calcifying the system. I have an example here because I think this is really vital to understanding. Let's say we had this pipe, and this was our pipe for a water system. Would you drink water coming through this pipe? Yeah, I would. That looks good. But that's not what their pipes looked like. Their pipes might have looked something like this. Now keep in mind, as you go through mineral content, what happens as the water goes through it? You get chalk on your hands. You get minerals on your hands. Sorry about the mess. And, and so the water, by the time it got to Laodicea, was lukewarm. It was no longer hot. It was no longer cold. It was just this, this putrid room temperature filled with a mineral content that we have evidence would actually make people sick. It, it would make people throw up as they drank it at times. But they had no other choice because if you need water to live, you drink what comes in. And so that's the context that Christ says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Either because both the, both the cold water from Colossae and the hot water from Hierapolis were valuable. They were worthwhile. But so because you are lukewarm, and it's lukewarm because they tried to handle things on their own and build their own way to get water, and it was going through the, the system that was, was minerals were leaching in, just like for us, the world can leach into our Christian walks. And the world can calcify us and leave all kinds of deposits and leave a form of Christianity that isn't pure, that is something altogether different, but yet we think is such a great thing. So he says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the wording for spit you out of my mouth, not to get gross, but is to vomit is to vomit. Our kids, one of our kids was sick again this week. And I got to hold the bowl. And we had projectile vomit. As I'm studying this passage. <laughs> what a picture 
of how God felt about the church at Laodicea that was mixing worldliness with godliness. That, was, that, that had strayed from a pure Christianity, and we're going to see why in the next verse. We're going to see the, the reason. They had strayed from Christianity in such a way they had mixed it with their own self-reliance to where it was something that was nauseating to God. And they would have understood that because they would have said, yeah, there's times I drink our water and I go and throw up. And so God is using their own experience to help them understand just how disgusting a lukewarm lifestyle is. As they had to drink that revolting water every day. So a couple things, and one of the bullet points there is self-sufficiency destroys usefulness and effectiveness. Because God says if you were only cold or hot, you'd be useful. It would be what I intended. But you're lukewarm because you have let all these other things into your life. Because you are not completely sold out for God. And so in verse 17, we get to the central point of this whole letter. And this is the, 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 the verse to, to underline, to study. For you say. And that word for at the beginning, he's giving a, a reason for the lukewarmness. He's giving a reason for his distaste. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Think about that. I am rich. I have amassed all this wealth. I don't need God. I have security. I have everything I want. I have prospered. I need nothing. And that phrase is the key phrase to the the distaste. Because if you need nothing, you don't need Christ. And you don't need Him for everyday life. You don't need Him for sanctification. You don't need Him for your Christian walk. And as soon as we don't need Christ, we have set ourselves up as God. And in this description, notice all the eyes, the boastfulness. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And then the next phrase, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And that phrase would have hit them like a ton of bricks. Like the stone their water supply came through. Because they thought they were fine. They thought they had it together. They were content living a life where we could say we're Christians, maybe go to church on Sunday, but we don't live a life during the week that is reliant on God at all. We're not stepping out in faith for God. We're not doing anything that we need His help. We're just living life in a comfortable, wonderful, cruise ship way. Doing our time on Sunday to get our fire insurance. And God's saying, no, no makes me sick. So the central point of the passage is to be unaware of our need for Christ in everything we do is arrogant self-sufficiency. Do you see that in that verse? The arrogance, the being unaware. To be unaware of our need for Christ in everything we do is arrogant self-sufficiency. And those are nicer words than what Christ used when he uses wretched, pitiable. And to the wealthy to the the upper crust, to be called wretched and pitiable would have been an insult. He says you're poor, which attacks their wealth. You're blind, which attacks the, the whole medical industry for the eyes and that they prided themselves on being able to heal eyes. 
and naked, which dealt with the textile industry. So he attacks them in the things that they thought were their strengths. And isn't that true? Our strengths, we can rely on them, we can rely on self, and that can get in the way of trusting God. They can get in the way of walking with God. Abraham Lincoln said this, Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. What a great summary of Laodicea. And so we see self-sufficiency blinds us to our true state. It keeps us from seeing the sin. It keeps us from seeing what our lives are truly like because it leads to complacency. If I think I have it together, then I don't need to work on anything. And so to be lukewarm was to be self-sufficient and it was to be complacent. And if I have to say what the church in America and what our church has to fight against most right now, it's apathy. It's apathy because we're unwilling to step up because we don't see a need. I'm rich. I have it together. The poor people that don't know Christ, well, they can, they can handle it on their own. And in our apathy, we have become lukewarm so many times. And we have become nauseating to the God we say we love. It's like the story of the emperor who had no clothes. And they convinced him he had these fine garments. And he walks out naked and shameful. And we must be on guard that the church today does not walk around with no clothes. Because we don't need God. Christ puts this church last. And he puts this point last because I think it's the culminating points of what he's been leading through throughout all the churches. And this this point hits home so hard for me because this is where I was at and this is what I fight against. Before we, we entered the ministry, and we're talking, I don't know, 18 years ago now, before we entered the ministry, we had a plan. And we had it all worked out. And I had a business, a software business. And I had it all worked out that I was going to make certain amounts each year. And when I got to a point where all of our needs were met, and when I got to a point where all of our future needs could be met with financial and where we'd be able to, to have a salary that would continue the lifestyle we wanted, then I would consider going into ministry. Think about what I just said. And God, I don't know how else to put it, he slapped me around for that. And in the course of four weeks, he took every area that we were self-reliant in and he stripped it from our lives. Probably the most painful four weeks of our lives. As he stripped away friendships, as he stripped away family, as he stripped away all finances, as, as he stripped away our security in our home, as we were robbed, as we, he stripped away health, as we had some major health concerns, all in four weeks. And, and I can remember Susie and I talking at the end of the, the toward the end of those four weeks, and we're like, we better learn something quickly. Because <laughs> we can't go through this anymore. And God was systematically, one by one, taking everything in our lives that we relied on, that we would say, I am rich, I am prosperous, I don't need anything, and saying, oh yeah? Oh yeah? I'm going to tear that out from your life. Because it makes me ill. 
And at the end of that, as we talked, we said, we have nothing left but Christ. Maybe it's time to go into the ministry. That was the point. That was the point. And that's the point of Laodicea. You say you don't need me. You say you don't need anything. And you're living cush, comfy lives that are lukewarm and distasteful to God. And so the challenge for us is, is where, what areas have we become lax? What areas have we become complacent? What areas have we said, I don't need God anymore? Maybe not directly saying I don't need God, but by our actions, we don't include him. And if we don't include him, then we are saying we don't need him. And Christ wants a church that needs him desperately with all their heart. We see that in verse 18, his command. And praise God, the passage doesn't stop at 17. Praise God that he he gives an answer. And he gives a command in 18, 19, and 20, starting with verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And he starts there and and the command, and he's, he's going to continue it, but the command is to rely on Christ for everything. If you come away with something today, come away with need Christ. Need Christ in everything you do. Because if you don't need Christ, if we don't come with that mindset, we're not walking with him. And he can't use us. And so in verse 18, he says, stop it. Stop trusting in yourself. Rely on Christ. And so he says, I counsel you to buy from me or to make me your source. And did you catch the three things he mentions? It's the three things the city's known for. It's the three foundations of their self-reliance. Starts with their wealth. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. What he's saying is your money doesn't make you rich. It's what comes from me. It's what you do for for me. It's how you use those resources for me that makes you rich. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Don't trust your own resources. They can be gone in an instant. They can be gone in an earthquake. They can be gone in a job loss. They can be gone in an instant. But trust me, because the only thing that lasts, the only thing that continues is what we have done for Christ. A great question to ask if we're relying on God with our finances is, can I make God all my resources available to God? Do I feel comfortable giving to God? Do I feel comfortable saying anything I have can be used by him? Because if we're holding on to our stuff with closed hands, then we're relying on stuff and not on Christ. He says by white garments, representing purity, representing righteousness. But he's, he's tying into the textile industry. By white garments from me, trust me, rely on me so that you may clothe yourself and the shame will be gone, the shame of your sin. Stop relying on yourself for spirituality. Whether you've gone to church, whether you've done this ministry, come to me and ask for forgiveness. Come to me 
and repent. And then solve to anoint your eyes so that you may truly see. He says, all your medicine, you're not able to see. You're not able to see life as God would have you see it. You're not able to see people with God's eyes saying, man, that person needs Christ. Or situations, oh, the, the, God wants this to happen in this situation. God wants to use me in this way. Oh, this person has come up. That's a divine appointment from God. We miss all that because we're blind if we're self-reliant. But if we start each day saying, God, what do you want me to see? Who do you want me to talk to today? That person that is an annoyance might actually be a divine appointment from God. And so verse 18, Christ is saying, rely on me for everything. Need me. Then he says, accept correction. It's a sign of love. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, again, self-reliance makes us blind to our sin. So the only way to see it is through correction. So the question there is, how open to correction are we? If someone comes along and says, you know, I've noticed this, is our first reaction defensiveness, which comes from self-reliance? Or is it acceptance to say, okay, let's see what I can work on? And God here is doing the disciplining. And it's because He loves us. In Hebrews 12, we know that He disciplines those He loves. He disciplines sons. And so be zealous. Be, be, be on fire for God. But be zealous to repent. Be zealous to be right with God. To need God. Finally, verse 20, include Christ in the ordinary. Include Christ in the ordinary. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Powerful verse. So many times you've heard that used in an evangelical context. Come to Christ. It's written to the church. It's written to a church that is self-sufficient and doesn't need him. And he's saying, by not needing me, you've left me out in the cold. You've left me outside, but I'm here waiting to come in. I'm here waiting to fellowship with you in the ordinary things of life. I'm here waiting for you to rely on me. And again, some culture helps us understand this. To have a meal together was to fellowship together. It was to to be in relationship together. Meals weren't five-minute Taco Bell tacos. They were an event And to eat a meal with someone said you were extending friendship to them, protection to them, relationship with them. So when God says, I will come in and eat with you, He's saying, I will be in relationship with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. But we have to include Christ in the ordinary. He's not pounding down the door. He's knocking and saying, will you open it? Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the promise is to rule with Christ, to reign with Christ. Real prominence, not false prominence of prosperity, but real prominence of making a difference for the kingdom, of reigning with Christ at his side. And then we'll see that in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 as we see God on His throne and then Christ on His throne and then later as the the saints rule with Christ. Sort of a, a taste of what's to come in Revelation. 
But the, the, the takeaway from this text, the takeaway is we need to be a people that rely on Christ and need Christ for everything we do. And not just in name, not just on Sunday. See, the questions come, let's, you wake up tomorrow morning, do we start with prayer? Do we start by saying, God, what do you want me to do today? Do we come to every meeting and say, Lord, I need you. I don't have it all together. Do we come and ask for wisdom? This applies to everything. Everything. To develop an attitude that says, if I'm walking down the street, I'm walking in a sense of reliance. If I'm driving home from church, I have a sense of asking God's direction. If I'm talking with someone in the gym, I'm constantly in the back of my mind saying, I need Christ to give me wisdom here. Because Laodicea was rich and prosperous and needed nothing. But Christ said, you need everything. You need me. You need me. And so village, will we be on guard against apathy? Will we be on guard against complacency? Against being satisfied with where we're at spiritually, which leaves God disgusted with our lives because we're just lukewarm. Don't be the pipe with the junk in it. Let's be hot or cold, healing or refreshing, used by God because we are seeking him with every part of our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that you would strip us of self-reliance. That no matter how hard or how painful that is, no matter what we have to lose, you would strip us of self-reliance. You would strip us of those things that we hold as secure and take security in so that we will serve you so that we will be used by you. Strip us of complacency in our spiritual walks where we're just content to do a couple spiritual things and call ourselves Christians. Lord, drive us to our knees. Drive us to rely on you no matter what that takes. That we can then come together and say how great is our God. He is enough for all we need. His grace is amazing. Impress on our minds, impress on our hearts who you are and our deep need for you for everything and every part of our lives. Lord, this week, may our mantra be, I need God. I need God. Lord, challenge us. If there's any holdouts in in this church, if there's any holdouts in our lives of lukewarmness, break the calcium deposits away and challenge us to be a people on fire for you. Lord, we love you and look forward to see what you will do with the people dedicated to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.